told me very clearly and bluntly, if what I told him was not true, he would chop my head off. And I knew he was serious, he was not joking, you know, and I knew that's the time kind of guy who, who has done these kind of things before. That's Jerome Fontana, head of the Cairo delegation for the International Committee of Red Cross, and this is the Restore Podcast. So welcome guys to the Restore Podcast with me, Owen Walker. So today's session is uh, something slightly different. Today we're going to look at humanitarian leadership with Jerome Fontana. So Jerome is the new head of uh, the ICRC delegation in, our, in Cairo. Since joining ICRC in 1998, Mr. Fontana has worked in 13 different countries. So Rwanda, India, Uganda, Uzbekistan, China, Palestine, Bangladesh, Nepal, Lebanon, the Ivory Coast, Cameroon and Switzerland. Initially, he worked as a protection delegate and then as a program coordinator before receiving higher responsibilities in the management of all ICRC operations and security in various countries. Mr. Fontana is experienced in supporting Red Cross and Red Crescent societies and national authorities in diverse humanitarian fields, including on migration topics and the promotion of international humanitarian law in their respective countries. Mr. Fontana holds a master's degree in international relations from the Geneva Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies and a business degree from the Oxford Business School. He's married and has three children. So welcome to the podcast, Jerome. Thank you so much, Owen, for the, your invitation. Oh, absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So, Jerome, um, what I would like to do really is just dig into your background um, and also some of the most fantastic countries that you've navigated in the past. And, and also just look at some of the symbiotic relationship with uh, mental health and just uh, and some of the anecdotal experience you've had throughout your roles in your time at ICRC, if that's okay. So no better way to kick it off than just to, just to really look at your 22-year career, Jerome, because it's a fantastic career um, across uh, uh, ICRC, so the International Committee of Red Cross, uh, in multiple countries and multiple regions, uh, and areas of conflict and war-torn economies. So in your mind, Jerome, are there any ubiquitous principles or themes um, that you employ as a member or leader throughout these countries in your time? What has always fascinated me is to realize that actually, for me, life is totally unfair, even cruel at times. Now, when you speak to people, when you have like this face-to-face -face conversation, even with the worst people you can imagine on earth, there's always this connection, this part of humanity in people that is fascinating because at times I just was really wondering how can people have committed such horrible crimes and when you meet with them when you have this one-to-one -one conversation with them they appear to be quite into bracket normal people or people who can have a, a very nice chat with and and connect with so that always fascinated me absolutely and just like you said you know over multiple countries and multiple um, political and economical dynamics in these countries but you're right to say I, I guess relating to people on a very human level it, it sounds like actually the, the the dynamic is very different to maybe how they might come across on, on paper definitely absolutely so um 
Jerome, this is a sort of a mental health podcast and, and digs into mental health, but just around also looks at some of the wider aspects of, of, of community. But just looking at mental health for, for a minute or two, um, what does ICRC do in your mind to mitigate and, um, and foster positive mental health in some of these war-torn countries? Actually, over the last uh, few years, I mean, mental health and what we call mental health and psychosocial support has become a very important part of the, um, the program we run, in addition to our existing programs. Like, for example, when we visit prisoners into prisons, we also try to see about the mental health aspect of, you know, dealing with victims of torture, for example. We have more and more activities about families of missing persons, people who went missing because of armed conflict. There again, there's a, a very important component of our program regarding the mental health restoration of uh, families of missing people. And what is very interesting to me is that it's done in a very comprehensive way. It's not only like peer-to-peer -peer support group or you know, clinical mental health, but also some accompaniment, trying to help them with you know, administrative issues or economic problems and uh, memorialization or commemorating the, the fact that there's someone in their family who is missing, he's not dead, he's not here. So this kind of ambiguous loss is something that can be extremely painful for family members and is a pain which is really, you know, lasting for years, generations and never goes away. So the work of the ICRC in this sense about mental health can really make an impact, a very good impact. Then for the ICRC staff members, I think more and more because we work in war-torn war countries and in, in very difficult environment, ICRC has tried to really take the, this topic also very seriously for helping its own staff members to manage their stress or manage their exposure to difficult events. So that has improved quite significantly over the last few years. It's really interesting you mentioned that actually, Jerome, because quite rightly, as you said, the, the, the people you're visiting have got their own adverse mental health from sometimes no no fault of their own but but quite rightly as you say it's it's prudent to look at the 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 360 degree effect of like you said mental health on 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 co-workers and or people in in these situations um are there any initiatives that icrc have uh, have instigated to to help um colleagues talk about it, it has it just become more of a uh, uh, uh has it been advertised or or indeed um, brought into the light within ICRC to, to, to talk about mental health within it from a peer-to-peer -peer relationship just to expose any issues? Has, has there been an initiative to, to sort of bring it into the light and to talk about it more freely? Yes, definitely. I mean, the, usually when we, hire, we, we are in very difficult situation, what ICRC is really encouraging is to have some uh, collective or team uh, exchanges, like really the team can connect and share their own exper experiences and feelings and make sure that there's some peer-to-peer -peer support within ICRC teams. That's the first uh, kind of support we have. Obviously, when, it's, when it has to go beyond that, we have a staff health unit, both at level of different offices and at the headquarters, who can provide more specialized care or refer our colleagues who need this kind of support to specialists to make sure that uh, they are really well taken care of. So in your time, Jerome, um, and just digging into your bio a little bit, you started your career in ICRC in 1998 as, as a detention delegate. Uh, so very much going to these detention facilities and visiting people and, tr and getting access to them. Um, 
and probably seeing some really difficult mental health along the way from 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 a um, a detainee perspective but just pivoting slightly Jerome and looking at how you've navigated your own mental health over over your career and indeed your own life could you talk to that and how you how you have and and, and indeed if you have struggled in the past sure actually I have struggled with some mental health issues myself and it's it was, if you want, something that came, you know, progressively. What I mean is that when I started with the ICNC, and I'm still very committed and trying to do my best, but people who are less experienced, they really want to change the world. You know, try to, th I mean, they think that they will be able to solve problems that they are witnessing. And, uh, and unfortunately, most of the time, we can influence, we can impact or improve the situation we, we, we see, we witness but it's very seldom that we can really find long-term solutions. When I started working for the ICNC, I did a lot of prison visits. And during this kind of visit, we try to assess the living condition of prisoners, but we also try to assess the treatment they got. And in some countries where I worked, uh, detainees are basically ill-treated or even tortured. So when you visit prisoners repeatedly every week and you, you absorb all these kind of awful stories, and try to understand why it happens, why the system is so cruel. And always you know, read uh, stories about torture, interview people about torture, write reports, try to you know, make a difference. And it's very slow to happen. For me, five years after I joined ICRC, it became too much for me. So I really had this breakdown and had depression. And then I, I got treated for that. And progressively, I started knowing myself better knowing my limit understanding the i mean the, also the limitation of my work and trying to know exactly where i should inv in invest my effort and on which other topic i have to realize that i'm not going to be inf uh, able to influence the situation as much as i would i would alive to so basically knowing myself knowing the the rational and the, the the raison d'être, I mean, the limit of my work also helped me progressively to really find my position and feel much better. So you mentioned something really interesting there, Jerome, around self-care and, and, and knowing your limits. And I think that's a massive revelation I certainly had as a, as a paramedic, as a critical care paramedic over the, the last 20 years myself. And now coming into ICRC, realizing, like you said, that the, 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 the need sometimes for community and and actually sometimes to process things with other people versus sometimes when you're on your own and that's okay but knowing knowing the fundamental boundaries of, of, of when you do need to reach out to other people and I think that revelation is massive actually it's massive because what what you probably found and I found certainly as a clinician is if you don't reach out and get that help when you need it from a self-care perspective you stop functioning as a normal human being and as a and as a, and as a, a work colleague um, and, and you can't necessarily give to other people effectively i certainly had a moment from some very difficult clinical cases actually with um pediatric with short child cases where by i needed to i needed to reach out actually and and get some counseling um because what i was doing is turning up to work and I was immediately at a deficit at the start of a shift and, 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 and actually felt this impending, this impending need to um, almost 
almost I couldn't I couldn't move I couldn't shift out of the feelings and, and out of the mindset and actually it was only through a process of counseling that I could actually move transcend and move through those feelings but again that revelation you just said around knowing your limits knowing when it's healthy to talk and this notion is towards what you were saying around peer-to-peer support and ICRC knowing when it's right to talk because seeing so much suffering as you did on a day-to-day basis you can only take so much before I think like you said you need to process that with someone else so that's a really interesting insight there Jerome. I think what's the dilemma also within ICRC is that people who are really, really on the front line like people visiting prisons people you know having uh, you know working in uh, displaced people camps or you know people fa- facing like this uh, this daily suffering are junior staff members within the ICRC they are the younger staff members within the ICRC when you get more experience and when you 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 know after five ten years or 15 years in the ICRC usually you get more managerial positions you are less exposed to this kind of daily suffering so it also become easier for for managers because they can still of course uh, visit uh, prisons and and be in contact with the the beneficiaries we have but it's less often than the more junior staff members and basically it's the more junior staff members who have to learn how to manage their emotions well and the experienced staff members who have maybe learned how to manage their emotions don't have to do it so much than you know what they should have had when they just started with the icrc that's a really interesting dichotomy there, actually. And, and the more you progress as a manager and or leader, um, the, 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 the more offset or ameliorated the, the stresses are. So like you said, it, mandate, it really mandates good self-care from the start and, and good emotional intelligence. Um, and, 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 and like you say, knowing yourself, taking care of yourself from, 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 from the off. Because like you said, as your journey goes on and you become less and less at the front line, it might become certainly from one aspect become easier and easier from a mental health perspective. That's a really interesting insight. And what it does to anyone listening to this who might be thinking about humanitarian uh, care or indeed a humanitarian career is from the offset, making sure, like you said, if, if you're working at the front line, that you've got good practices in place, good good habitual practices, good community around you, and you are reaching out to people because you at the front line it often is the hardest and that's not just that's not just icrc that's that's you know that's as a frontline paramedic as a frontline doctor as a frontline nurse as a frontline soldier as a frontline most things you you are interfacing with the most brutal aspects of the role it's a really interesting dynamic actually so jerome just pivoting for a second looking at your bio there is another ubiquitous theme that seems to have been playing out over a number of years and one which is really a fundamental principle of ICRCs as well. So I'd like to tap into that if that's okay. And that's around protection and security. Um, because going to, you know, the whole 13 different countries, and, 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 and most, most of them, if not all of them, in a war-torn state. Um, why is security such an important theme in these sort of dynamic ecosystems of conflict? Because ICRC, the International Community of the Red Cross, we work... I mean, our main core—I mean, our core mandate is to help victims of armed conflict. So we are basically in the worst places in the world regarding uh, armed violence and, and this kind of very volatile security uh, environment. Security is paramount to the, uh, to the ICRC. Security of our staff members, because without security, we cannot help 
beneficiaries or affected population. Unfortunately, over the last few years, uh, we have had many security incidents in Afghanistan, in Central African Republic, in Mali, in South Sudan, Somalia, Syria, Iraq, I mean, Yemen, uh, because that's where, you know, the, uh, the situation is, is extremely volatile. So ICNC takes security very seriously. What we do is, and because we work without escort, without military escort, so we have to base our security and being accepted by all sides, by uh, regular forces, by the government in place, but also by non-state armed groups or paramilitary groups. And to be able to reach this level of understanding and acceptance is always extremely challenging, always fragile, to be quite frank. And unfortunately, uh, it's not always a guarantee of our security. So we try to take all possible measures and make all possible contact to explain who we are as a neutral, impartial, independent humanitarian actor. Uh, but there's a lot of suspicion, there's a lot of, you know, yeah, other consideration that sometimes put our colleagues at risk. So we have had colleagues killed uh, during their work. Uh, right now we still have uh, four people who are held hostages, one person in Somalia, three people in Syria, and obviously other serious security incidents like our colleagues getting raped or attacked or stolen vehicles or stolen their, you know, their belongings. Just, just, just looking at that a little bit more from, from your perspective, because I've certainly learned a lot more about situation awareness in, in my, throughout my career, just in a moment-to-moment -moment, uh, basis around um, the acute needs of a patient, but also some of the peripheral things around the danger when you're on scene. And um, could you speak to sort of how you've how you've fine-tuned your situation awareness? Because it must have been something that you've you've had to practice over over your entire career. I think the, the most important is to be uh, very sensitive, I mean, to be very aware of the environment, talk to as many people as possible, and really listen to our, our local staff members, like our resident staff members. For me, very simply, when we move to a, a location which could be very dangerous, people who are the most aware usually is our, our drivers, because they are the ones who know the checkpoints, they are the ones who feel the you know, the, uh, the situation changing. Very often us as foreigner in a place, we don't have all these clues. Then obviously with the authorities or with uh, opposition groups, uh, their discussions are very important and we have to be very clear about who we are, what we do, and try to assess whether they accept that or not. So it's really a mix of different approaches about environment scanning, obviously, you know, trying to uh, understand our complex environment as well as possible. And then it's about feelings, gut feelings. Do we go, we don't go, and we, if we are not 100% sure that it would be safe enough for us to move to a certain place, we would definitely cancel the field trip. It's always a challenge for, for all humanitarian actors to uh, make sure that what we do is really based on the principle of humanity and that the, the work we do really benefit affected population is not diverted in some way by either side. Uh, with regular forces or with the regular authorities, for, for them usually they are very reluctant uh, to have ICRC opening contact with the other side. 
because for, for regular authorities, they very often qualify the other side as terrorists or criminals or people who do not deserve to be, to be treated uh, with, uh, with humanity. Uh, and then similarly, for the opposition groups, for them, they, they would not necessarily, you know, uh, or basically they would welcome the ICNC mostly if they can benefit from our assistance. So making them understand that the assistance we provide to local population, which could be food or non-food or water and sanitation services, is supposed to benefit the civilian population only. It's not supposed to benefit members of the armed groups. In many countries, armed groups are blended into the communities. So making sure that you know it's really well understood and respected that basically the food we distribute is not to feed the opposition, the rebels, is extremely challenging and it takes a lot of time. At times it works, at times it's not 100% where we would like to go. Uh, and that we have to be very careful to be really accepted as a neutral, impartial, independent humanitarian actor. Indeed, and that, that interplay is, is really interesting, uh, as you say. Um, is there any instances to your mind whereby ICRC have been active within hospitals and, and treated rebel groups uh, as, as a ubiquitous people group? Um, has, has that occurred? And is that a policy of ICRC to, to treat everyone that comes through the door in, in, in a hospital setting? It is. So uh, the, the leading principle and the first fundamental principle of the of the Red Cross, Red Crescent Movement, is the principle of humanity and impartiality. We have to treat, we have to assist, we have to support victims of armed conflict based on needs, based on the level of vulnerability. Whatever side they are from and you know whatever political affiliation they, they belong to. So yes, in many countries, basically, that's also one of the reasons why some armed groups, they know us very well, they understand us very well, not because of what we explain them, but because they benefited from our services, like the ICRC hospital in Kandahar, in southern Afghanistan. I mean, many members of the Taliban had been injured and treated in this ICRC hospital. They know ICRC firsthand because they received this medical care, which they had to receive because as anybody who is injured, uh, they, they have a right to access medical care. And by receiving this medical care, they know ICRC, they realize that we are really unbiased and treat anybody, and then started to you know, uh, believe what we say and uh, facilitate contact between the ICRC and the Taliban. The other examples is that because we visit prisons, we also meet members of uh, armed groups inside the prison. And for them, definitely, uh, we try to make sure that living conditions inside prison improve, like for any other prisoners. So when we try to improve access to open air, family contacts, uh, or you know, trying to prevent ill treatment or torture at the time of arrest or at the time of investigation, we do it for everybody. So some of these uh, armed group members are extremely grateful to the ICRC personally because they could see the, the benefit of uh, having ICRC visiting prisons. So Jerome, just looking at a little bit of a deep dive into some of the, um, some of the rebel groups that you indeed have both interviewed and or uh, visited to build rapport with. Um, 
in your mind, how have how has your approach been to to some of the atrocities um, that they may have inflicted or instigated, um, uh, and how how have you approached that um, from a sort of a consequence perspective? Very often, I think I have to really make a clear difference between my personal emotions and the role uh, I play as the representative of a humanitarian organization. Because many people I met, uh, especially during visits to prisoners, uh, had, had really committed horrendous crimes. And they are bluntly say, uh, said like monsters. Uh, so on a very personal level, I, I realized that they, you know, they have committed these horrendous crimes and I don't try to minimize at all. I'm really, uh, really, I mean, I felt horrible because of what they committed. Now, as the representative of the ICRC, what is very important for, for me is to make sure that uh, these people face the full force of the law. What I mean is that they should really be sentenced uh, based on domestic law and international law, nothing else, nothing more. And that's the reason why, for example, the ICRC is not against the death sentence. So uh, we don't, we just respect whatever domestic legislation there is, and we, we work within this framework of domestic and international legislation. Uh, so, but yes, very often they, I face this dilemma between playing my role as a humanitarian worker and you know fighting my own feelings and emotion, which would be sometimes completely uh, going the other way. Indeed, and uh, so I know one of your postings was in Rwanda and um, amongst other various postings. In fact, I think that might have even been your first posting, uh, if I'm not wrong. Um, it, d could you speak to the experience in Rwanda and some of maybe the sort of re rebel groups that you, you, you indeed had to interface with uh, in that country? In Rwanda, it was particularly interesting because I was visiting uh, people who committed genocide in Rwanda and I also was in charge of uh, programs for association of widows of, of the genocide. So basically the ICRC was supporting uh, like income generating project for associations, small groups of widows, like in different villages who would come, you know, form groups of 20, 25 uh, members and then have some uh, like uh, income generating activities like sewing project or agriculture or, you know, in many different kind of fields. So I was really, you know, on some days discussing with genociders and on the following day discussing with the windows, uh, widows and seeing all the, the suffering they had. You know, again, like what we said at the very beginning, everybody has a part of humanity inside. Even the, the worst monsters of the world have this very human feeling. If I can recall also another experience I had uh, regarding the re-establishment of fav family links. Maybe you know that ICNC has visited Guantanamo Bay uh, for many, many years. And one of the work we do regarding uh, detainees in Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay and their families is to organize video calls, obviously with the full uh, censorship of the for security reasons and whatever. So it's like really family discussions that we organize between uh, detainees remaining in Guantanamo Bay and their families. When I used to work in Indonesia, one of, the, of these detainees has his family in Indonesia. And without giving the name of the detainee, it's one of the top uh, uh, detainees in, in Guantanamo. So really someone who, who has committed uh, very, very serious crimes. 
the very first time that we organized a call and he could see his mother after more than 15 years without having any contact with his mother, he started crying. And that was a very human, emotional feeling that anybody would have uh, when you see your uh, close family members that you had not seen for so many years. And then realizing that this person who himself had been responsible for the death of hundreds of people would be, which is obviously a, awful for so many families, would himself be so you know, affected by not having been able to see his mother for 15 years and be completely you know, in tears and, and not able to speak uh, was very hard for me to, to understand. Just looking at some of the absolute deprivation uh, of circumstance as well, because I think if I'm right in saying, Jerome, you know, these People's lives are difficult enough without atrocities on the top of them. So um, could you sort of speak to some of the, so, so for people listening to this, could you speak to some of the sort of the living circumstances outside of the atrocities? So, so, so being, um, being sent on assignment in Rwanda or indeed in, um, up, up in Sri Lanka or Kashmir, what, what are the, some of, you know, what are the living circumstances we're talking about? Are they, do, do, uh, is it mainly agricultural farming circumstances with very sort of basic income and, 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 and basic living standards, um, uh, w with not necessarily access to healthcare and or water and or hygiene, or, or is, it, is there a whole sliding scale of, 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 of kind of living standards that you've seen along the way? Yes, I think I've seen all different kind of living standards with the people we helped. Interestingly, the, the hardest operation that ICNC had to do at the very beginning, uh, actually just before the years I joined the ICNC, was during the war in ex-Yugoslavia. Because for the first time, ICNC was working in, uh, or the first time for many years, was working in a European country. And having this still mostly Western uh, ICNC delegate having to work with victims looking pretty much like themselves was even more difficult than, and especially in this time where we have this fight against racism, which is becoming extremely prominent, uh, to make sure that we don't have within the ICRC this bias saying, ah, but anyway, when we work in Africa, we expect people to be suffering. We expect famine. We expect, uh, I would not say mass murder, but this level of suffering, which is higher than in Europe. So having the ICNC working in the ex-Yugoslavia was really a challenge at the beginning because people could really more directly identify with the victim. And now for the ICNC, we really try to make sure that we don't have this bias, that wherever we work, whatever the condition of the, of the people we are trying to assist and protect, uh, we have the same, exactly the same standard, that we have the same logic in our, in our strat strategies and orientations. So I want to dig into that um, answer a little bit, Jerome, if that's okay, because I know Srebrenica in, uh, in, 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 in Bosnia and Herzegovina around the 1995 period was the biggest genocide outside of World War II on, on European soil. And was, uh, was ICRC um, active within the Srebrenica tr atrocities? You know, ICRC was very much active uh, at the time. Uh, I don't have the full detail about what we did to prevent this uh, mass murder. What I know is that ICNC has worked uh, to try to trace missing persons following Srebrenica. A very big example was for the, the families of the missing. 
we made a book of uh, belongings concretely uh, all the bodies who were recovered from the massacre from Srebrenica most of the bodies were decomposed to a state that it was not possible anymore to identify the, the human remains what could be identified are the clothes and the, the, the items people had on them so basically and it, it was a very also moving book to look at uh, ICRC made a book of jeans, t-shirts belt, a wallet and we published that in several books and we, we managed to identify the dead bodies with the families who could recognize the belonging of their loved one who had been killed uh, during the massacre of Srebrenica. And that was quite successful to be able to, to do this, uh, to help families to go through this grief process. So if you've had any adverse sort of moments of, of, of verbal conflict or indeed some difficult moments, how have you transcended those in the longevity of your career. So I suppose what I'm speaking to is, is some very difficult interactions with either rebel groups or indeed not even some, some very hurt and, uh, and distraught people groups that have had some horrendous things happen to them. And, th and then you sort of seeing that firsthand, um, how have you, how do you return to baseline? I think it's, um, it's never possible to completely you know, protect uh, myself. I think it's always a job where I'm so involved emotionally that I get affected and I want to, to keep this proximity to the, the work I do because otherwise if I, if I would try to really completely detach myself from this kind of uh, situations, I don't think I would be able to do my job well anymore. So I don't want to overprotect myself. But it's very true that it's also important to, to find some balance. So for me, it's more to have like a he healthy lifestyle or to have my family behind me or to have this, uh, to take some perspective on the situation I faced. Uh, but it's never for me to try to, you know, to, to avoid these kind of situations. I've been very often asked the question about which mission was the most difficult for me, or which contact was the most difficult, or which people I've met were the, the most uh, horrible. Unfortunately, there is, no <laughs> there is no scale. What I mean is that I, I couldn't say, you know, I've liked every country where I worked. I've really tried to do my best for helping people in every country where I've worked. And I don't think there's any one place which is worse than another. I wouldn't say that Kashmir or Rwanda uh, where worse than where I worked in Indonesia, where I worked in, in Palestine or Israel or Ivory Coast. Uh, because when you, and again, I don't want to minimize any, any of the of stories I heard, but through the ICNC, I could always connect on a very personal level with the people I met and having their stories, where they came from, what happened to them was something also uh, really enlightening to me because everybody struggles. Everybody is you know, trying to make the best out of their life and there's some logic which can be completely uh, weaked logic in terms of reasoning ab about justifying what they did, but they always try to even sometimes convince ICNC delegates of the, their rationale, which would make completely no sense for let's say more normal people, but they try to convince us. Even when I visited some, again referring back to the, Rwandan gen uh, the genocide in Rwanda, 
I also visited people who had been convicted life sentences by the Arusha Tribunal and were basically in Benin uh, for their sentence. So really, the, you know, the, the worst of the worst of people who committed genocide. And still, after several years of being detained after the sentence, they were still trying to convince me that what they did was not that bad and that they had been unfairly uh, treated by the Arusha Tribunal. So there's always this, trying, uh, this attempt to try to legitimize on their selves or to themselves, rather, uh, what they did. And of course, for, for me, it's, uh, it's something very often I did not really share their perspective and understand. Gosh, and you know, just to, especially when you, like you said, Jerome, you, you're seeing the next day the, the, the consequences of some of these atrocities. It, it's really hard to maybe just to listen to, to that. Um, um, because you, you're getting to see the fruition of, 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 the, of and the consequences of, of, of the atrocity. Um, so, Jerome, just pivoting slightly and looking at a different facet of you as a person and as a leader, um, could you speak to how you, how you lead when you're in these circumstances? Um, maybe speaking around to how you actively listen, because people think listening is quite passive, but actually, active listening is, 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 is not passive at all from the, from, the, from the mere fact you can use information you've heard to build rapport quite quickly in, and, and then f on the basis of that information really not only show respect but also just start to build that, that, that credibility with, with the people group and their trust fundamentally because I think trust um, so I'd, I'd like to like to get from you how you, a how you build trust, but b how you use listening to as a conduit for for, for trust. For most of the the contact I had with uh, either authorities or people who visit in prison or displaced families, I think really being very honest on who we are, what we do, what we can do, and what we are here for help to establish this baseline about the trust with the, the people we discussed. Of course, active listening is extremely important, not uh, agreeing with the person necessarily, but you know, taking notes, understanding, and trying to really put ourselves in the shoes of the other person, trying to understand the logic of the other person, and not necessarily uh, challenging the other person, but trying to, you know, bring the discussion in a, in a direction, in a sense, that would basically be useful for the work we do, but also be not creating some harmful effect to the person who is uh, sharing the information with us. For example, the big debate we have had within the ICNC is whether when we discuss with victims of torture about what happened to them, whether we would create an additional trauma by asking them to recall everything they have been through especially be because when we document this kind of incident, we try to really get the full detail. So knowing exactly to what extent we have to ask more questions and to what extent we should really you know, not insist too much or is based on the, the immediate uh, attitude and impression we have of the person in front of us is extremely important. It that in that sense, active listening and engaging and connecting with the person we have in front of us is key for both our work and, of course, not uh, doing some harm to the, pe the person we have in front of us. 
So, Jerome, you're, you're a, it's a personal question, but you're a father of three children, albeit different ages. Um, what are some of, what's some of the conferred lessons that you've wanted to embody within your children from your work? So, so from a transfer of knowledge perspective, some, you know, we spoke, we, we've spoken of the fact you've moved almost every two years, your, your children have moved with you, um, but you've learned along the way and every mission has probably added to, you know, your, your experience and also your perspectives and insights into, into, into armed conflict. How, what transfer of learning have you, have, have you wanted to infer on your children from, from, from this perspective? Actually, because of the lifestyle we have had so far, my children, I mean, they are really world citizens, truly world citizens. Because every time we move from one country to another, from one region of the world to another, they make new friends. So they made many friends in Asia, they made many friends in the Middle East. Uh, over the last few years, we also lived uh, four years in Africa. So for them, they don't see the difference in between people. I mean, they don't, they, I mean, honestly, they don't, they don't see uh, the fact that someone is black or you know Asian or European or whatever as having anything to do with connecting with people. And I think this ability they have of you know connecting quickly and, and feeling at ease immediately with anyone from any background is something I really envy them because I think it's something which is very seldom and should hopefully become more and more common. Uh, for my children, it's a reality. I mean, that's their way of life. That, that's what they have grown, grown up with and, uh, and they cannot do differently, basically. So I'm very proud of that. The other question is about the suffering of others, especially when we used to live in Bangladesh and my children were still in the, you know, in the just below 10 years old. They were really affected by seeing so much poverty, beggars in the streets or handicapped people, you know, begging and, and obviously having nothing. And sometimes it was very hard for them to take that because they, they were too young to really, you know, be confronted to so much poverty and witnessing so much suffering. So uh, I think it was a, an important lesson for them, for them to learn, but also something which we have to be a bit careful that they don't get traumatized or, you know, uh, affected by this kind of also difficult exposure at a very young age. That's a really interesting point, actually, Jerome. And it speaks to the, you know, the malevolence and in, in, um, inequality around us, and and almost having to interface with that at a young age and, and interact with that um, brings, again, quite a unique perspective that, you know, that, that actually th there is a disequilibrium in society, and certainly sometimes from an affected population, um, and I suppose having being in that, like you said, not not necessarily, hopefully being too affected by that, but, but having a, an early awareness and or appreciation of that is, is, is powerful. But something you said from your first answer actually, Jerome, around being citizens of the world and just embracing um, diversity is, is powerful, especially at this time, I think, in, in, the, in, his, in history and this, this contemporary time within the world where there's a lot of identity politics, and there's a lot of polarization around um, around certain groups, and and actually changing that narrative and 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 and, and having a, a unified approach whereby 
you not only acknowledge the the beauty in other people and in diversity, but you can embrace it and interact with it and almost affirm it in other people and, and come into more of a unity around um, uh, around diversity rather than become polarized into certain groups. And I think that that exposure is is probably powerful for your children because. Like you said, it's 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 it very much hopefully has fostered that embracing a culture of embracing diversity and um, uh, a whole card array of, of of ethnic groups, which is which is fantastic and and quite unique because I, I certainly don't think a lot of children probably get exposed to thirteen different missions in thirteen different countries upon multiple continents. In, in multiple areas where a lot of people don't tread so a lot of you know a lot of these places you've been to Jerome you, you can't almost sometimes get commercial flights to or indeed there's no commercial it, 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 it's off the beaten track that the people can't access these areas and so having how growing up in these areas of indigenous populations where people haven't got much but are willing to share a meal with you haven't got much but are willing to give you some uh, some uh, some of their cloth or some of their possessions just to just to try and identify and understand you that that must have been a powerful experience for your children yeah definitely especially because they had the chance to go to international school so sometimes at school they are with the the they have very wealthy uh, other students you know coming from the elite of the the, the society where they are and at the same time, they see the, the suffering. They see the you know the, the struggle of normal families. Or so that was always also for them personally an experience that really touched them a lot. Fantastic, Jerome. So I just wanted to dig into some of your personal traits and some some characteristics that you embody. But before we do, I just just got one more question around this interplay, really, because I I find this fascinating and I think it's it. it it's worth exploring a little bit further. So this interplay between, so some of the fundamental principles of ICRC is humanity, like you said, impartiality, neutrality, independence, voluntary service, unity, and universality. Um, in your mind, what's the interplay between neutrality and influence with authorities and or actors uh, in regions that ICRC want to, want to sort of work in, but don't necessarily share the same ethics or principles? So ICRC wants to talk to everybody, every government or every armed opposition group, even the worst one on earth. And that's always uh, ethically, sometimes personally uh, destabilizing because even though on a very personal level, there are people who are despicable, who are really, you know, not people I would like to really uh, have contact with. As ICRC representative, as ICRC, ICRC staff members, we have to talk to everybody to be able to gain access, to be able to secure our own security, basically, and be able to reach out to any people who need our assistance. So yes, of course, we, in my experience, I had some meetings, if I can give you an anecdote, with a, a vice minister in one country, which was obviously a very high position, and we were collecting allegations of torture committed by this very person, basically not even the person giving orders or you know supervising torture, but himself torturing prisoners inside the prison. And he was the same person we were basically dealing with to try to improve the situation. So it was a very awkward situation to be to have in front of us 
the person we knew was basically directly, personally involved in torturing prisoners. And we had to talk to him. Wow, Jerome, that, that's, yeah, that's pretty amazing, really, isn't it? Having to take that impartial step back and really try and be more objective than subjective and overlay any presuppositions on him, but, but be objective in that situation is extremely difficult, but necessary to fulfill the mandate. Um, yeah, gosh, that's, that's difficult. Another point, if I can add, which is very interesting as well, is to talk to people who have killed hundreds of people. You know, put a bomb. Uh, I discussed with um, people who, it's already old, but I mean, in 2002, there was a massive bomb explosion in Bali, killed uh, 202 people, half of them Australians. And ICNC, as part of our activities, we have visited people who have been arrested linked to this, uh, you know, bomb blast in Bali. So we knew exactly what they did. And when we talked to them, of course, we discussed about their living condition because that's our role to discuss about improving their living condition inside the prison based on the national legislation. But so, so we have some chit chat with them, you know, because it's part of the, uh, of the visit. And realizing that people who have committed some such awful crimes can be people you can talk to like for a normal conversation is very weird, it's completely weird. The same with when I was started with um, ICRC and I worked in Rwanda, I also met people accused of the worst crimes of genocide in Rwanda, uh, linked to the, the genocide in Rwanda in 94. And when I met with them, they are not the, let's say really the, the monster you can imagine. You can have with them a normal conversation which is something which would be very, you know, common if I would have met them outside of the prison in a small cafe or pub or whatever. You can have the same kind of discussion with them, knowing that they have killed hundreds of thousands of people. It's extremely awkward. There's almost no words for, for that really, is there? That, that, yeah, but, but, but then again, goes to show you that even the most monstrous of people with the most horrific of, of pasts, you can be cordial with and indeed build rapport with to, 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 to fulfill a mandate or to fulfill a mission. Yeah, wow. So I have got no comparator to that, Imona. I can't, there's nothing I can extrapolate to that which, which makes a comparison. The only comparison I can think of is that, you know, as a, as a paramedic and a critical care paramedic, there's been times in which I've treated people which have stabbed people or shot people in face to face. And I've, you know, I've, I've moved, I've actively had to treat pe the, the aggressor um, who might have killed somebody. Um, and and the, the person that they've killed is beyond help, is, is, is clearly dead. But then now my my treatment and deferral in the moment goes to goes goes to the aggressor um, and I, I might have already treated the, the, the dead person to the to the limit of, of care but they, they they died so in the moment defer to 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 the person that's that's done the, done the um, committed the crime or indeed the murder and um, 
you're right. You have to set aside um, any cognitive biases or indeed presuppositions in the moment. I c- candidly remember Jerome treating a patient on a, on the back of an ambulance, and he, he had the aggressor's blood all over him that he just killed, and you know have and then treating the, this patient and quite successfully actually, and managed to resuscitate him quite successfully, bring him back to being very much stable, very much um, able to transfer him in a stable fashion to 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 hospital, but. Having the blood of another person still on him, and thinking you've just taken a life, and yeah, but there's but you can't overlay any biases or indeed opinions at at that moment. You're right. You there has to be a quality of of healthcare and a quality of a quality of treatment, um, but very tangibly. And viscerally, you 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 know that, that something horrendous has, has just happened. Um, but to your point as well, Jerome, you know, interfacing with people, you know, I, I vividly rem- remember a conversation I had with with the assailant, the aggressor, and found out his name, uh, found out his personal details, his next of kin. He was actually uh, we, we were with the police at the time, um, and. He was very cordial, very calm, um, and and again, I think the the mistake there would be to overlay though how he's coming across there to maybe how he came across 10, 15, 20 minutes ago. But 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 the point being, you you can fundamentally relate to people irrespective of maybe previous previous actions, and that's still not the same as someone who's maybe orchestrated a genocide or indeed tortured massive amounts of people. But I viscerally at that moment realized I was building rapport with someone who just murdered somebody. And that was very strange, very strange, very strange. Jerome, I'd just like to change tack slightly and just look at some personal qualities of yours, if that's okay. So just around, you know, navigating a 22 year career in 13 different countries, multiple domains of speciality and discipline in these countries. Uh, security protection, de- detention, head of delegation, uh, leadership positions. How has self-discipline featured in your life, Jerome? And 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 so, how have you embodied that approach towards humanitarian work? Well, the I think it's very important to have self-discipline in the sense that the more experience I get and the more responsibilities I get, I become an example for others. So. Uh, being able to support my colleagues, I have to show them the good example. And being fair, being open to listen to other people, empathize, to emphasize with their feelings, with showing some proximity with my colleagues, is something which I think has uh, served me very well in the different environment where I've worked. And, and leading by example, more than by authority or by the, the hierarchy and whatever, for me, has always been the the most successful way of trying to to influence my colleague, especially because we are in a field of activities where we must be committed. I mean, someone who joined the Red Cross uh, just because he wants to travel or because he you know he, he wants to get some uh, benefits is not going to stay with the ICNC. If you don't believe in what you do, if you don't uh, 
you know, invest 100% of your energy and try to make the best you can to, to achieve some, uh, some result as a teamwork is not going to, we are not going to be successful. So having this very, you know, also connection with my colleagues, connection with what they feel and connection with how they, how they feel within the team is very important, especially because we are a very international team. So we come from with many different backgrounds, many different cultures, and there could be a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of, uh, you know, yeah, some tension which are, which are not worth it and which are, which are going to be very detrimental to the work. So trying to lead by examples, for me, I've always been the, uh, the best asset I have. And for that, self-discipline is, is key. Fantastic. And, and so looking at another, maybe one of your traits that you will have certainly had to be mindful of around some of the roles you've, you've done, how has sort of your attention to detail helped in your day-to-day, day-to-day work? Extremely important, especially when we speak about security because a wrong decision about security and missing part of the information can be deadly, literally deadly. So uh, being mindful and looking into the details and making sure that we don't, we don't miss anything and that we, we, we really respect all the our procedures and experience because ICNC has been existing for more than 160 years. So we have a long like institutional memory and, and best practices we have, we have learned from. So, you know, having this, this whole lessons learned uh, that we can benefit from and sticking to that is extremely important. And for that, it takes time, it takes attention. And uh, the work of the ICNC is, is extremely structured and organized and standardized in a sense. So we have to find the right balance between flexibility and efficiency because we work in very unpredictable and volatile environment. On the other hand, we have to be extremely mindful and pay attention to the details about our own guidelines and procedures to make sure that we don't expose our colleagues and we can be as uh, meaningful, relevant as possible. So you've talked about um, a few sort of leadership traits that you embody yourself, Jerome, around sort of leading by example and by you know some of your the attention to detail and 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 hopefully not only embodying that but um but modeling that to other colleagues so that pe- they, people can see how much you know your attention to detail um hopefully aligns other people to the same um what have you learned around leadership uh, from other people from some of your mentors it's just if there, if there's could you speak to some of the traits that you've learned from people you've looked up to, um, leaders in, 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 in humanitarian work that you've, that you've decided to embody or indeed start to, um, start to model yourself? The, the chance I've had is that by working in so many different countries, it means as well that I work in, with many different teams. So every time I start working in a new country, it's also a chance for me to have a new beginning about relationship with my team and start start from afresh. So that's uh, an advantage that I don't think many other people have in in companies or in other work because you know if you work with the same team for for many more years, 
You don't have the second chance or the third chance. So I've tried to benefit from that as much as possible and, not, and I've tried not to repeat the mistakes I made in my previous uh, assignment. What I've learned is to try to really adapt my style according to different people. You have people who need to be challenged. They, like, they are people who like to be put a bit under pressure uh, to be able to perform well. If you do that with other kind of personalities, they're going, going to be completely destabilized. So with other people, you have to really support them, encourage them, reassure them, praise them, and, and, try and trying to know exactly who needs to be challenged, who needs to be more supported, who needs to be more integrated in the team is extremely important. So this personality threat, as well as the, the balance inside the team, the different components of the team are also extremely important to make sure that there's a very good dynamic within teams. You speak there to bringing the best out of people and learning how, how they respond, which I completely agree to. Do they respond to affirmation but, or do they respond more to challenge? And that's, again, something I've learned along, uh, along the way as, as, as a paramedic around um, don't, not being scared to, to give affirmation to other, other people. Um, certainly in some of the ecosystems I've worked and lived in, um, affirmation is rarely given and actually it shouldn't necessarily be something that you should withhold from people if you see good practice. Uh, but as you say, learning, learning the triggers, learning the, the, the cognitive triggers and or characteristic triggers that you can both build rapport but get the best out of, of people with. And, and, and you're right, sometimes that takes a, a short while to get feel for people and to learn how to navigate people to, 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 to bring the best out of, out of them. But that's, that's a fantastic insight, Jerome. And so sort of to that point around sort of bringing other people to sort of this mental fortitude or focus, because I think what we all aspire to do is, is have mental focus in our, in our work, in our day-to-day. How has that been imparted to you, Jerome? In the, or indeed, have you, have you just embodied it yourself through your own practices? And so how, how do you instill that within, within others? And how, how have you embodied it yourself, that mental focus and that mental fortitude? I, I think it comes with really trying to have, uh, like really people understanding where we want to go, like really all pulling the, the same rope and trying to really have this common understanding. I wouldn't say that it takes mental fortitude or mental courage to do the work because I don't think the work we do, even though it's in, in difficult environment, necessarily needs courage. Uh, it needs commitment. It needs uh, solidarity within the team. Uh, it needs, uh, yeah, really this kind of team spirit and, and dedication. Courage is, is of course, to some extent part of the work, but we are, we are not really, I don't want to die working for the IC. What I mean is that we are not, we are not kamikaze. We don't, we don't want to you know, uh, save the world or really uh, expose ourselves to an extent where uh, we are not sure that we can really you know, uh, measure the risk and, and have uh, the risk which would be completely uh, disproportionate compared to the humanitarian impact we want. So for me, when I, I work with my team or when I try to consider security constraint we have, I'll, I'm always trying to balance the humanitarian impact expected with the security concern. 
So if the security concerns are too high, I would not go. But if the humanitarian impact expected is also extremely important, we might be ready to take a bit more security risks. But we are not, we are not going to you know, take risks or try to send teams or ask them to be courageous to go somewhere, uh, which is not clearly measured against the humanitarian impact. I just wanted to change tack slightly, Joram, and just look at um, some of the most challenging times you've had in your last in the last twenty two years over over multiple ecosystems of conflict, um, and so it, this notion is towards sort of the highs and lows of the work, really. But if you could maybe just speak to a more challenging time in your career, and and maybe just give an example of of that time, because I think just for listeners and for me, it'd be really interesting to see how you navigated uh, the, the, that challenging time because in those 13 different ecosystems of war-torn conflict there must have been some really challenging moments. Uh, actually one of these moments came uh, four months ago when I was still in, in Cameroon. You know in Cameroon there are two uh, anglophone like English-speaking provinces in a mostly French-speaking country and these two provinces wants to separate from Cameroon. So ICRC works in this uh, two provinces because there is basically uh, a lot of armed violence and uh, opposition groups. Uh, so four months ago when I was doing this kind of contact with one of these um, uh, opposition group commander explaining exactly who we are, what we do, he told me very clearly and bluntly if what I told him was not true he would chop my head off. And I knew he was serious, he was not joking, you know, and I knew that's the time kind of guy who, who has done these kind of things before. Gosh, that's some threat there, <laughs> That is some threat. And it probably speaks to your, to, to your ability to, um, to both de-escalate and indeed um, to, to just placate and build rapport in some of those situations. So that leads me on to actually, actually do you employ any de-escalation techniques? Because certainly as a paramedic, I, in some very fractious situations, both with staff and with patients in the past, I've had to really de-escalate the scene, and um, both verbally and non-verbally, actually. So with, certainly with patients, which are quite agitated, I try and de-escalate my non-verbal communication. So uh, don't square my shoulders at 180 degrees, I'd rather go to 90 degrees, so people have got a non-verbal way out of the communication. I, especially with males, agitated young males that have quite, been quite aggressive, I, I try and sit down with them to give a non-threatening um, posture and also get a bit lower than them, Just uh, which, again, non-verbally shows them that they are hopefully driving the communication and gives them that sense of security that I'm not trying to impose a for, forcibly upon them. And then, and then, and then I've also, I'm kind of answering my own question here, but I will get, um, I've realized around the power of agreement and I just, I'd, I'd love to see if these are any of the things you use or you use different tools. And, and when I say the power of agreement, uh, making the first two or three agreements, something that you ubiquitously agree on, because there is still commonality that you can agree on. You know, the sun is shining, the, the, the coffee is great, or so, some ubiquitous agreement, because then if the fourth, third or fourth agreement is something that I want you to agree on, 
it's a lot harder for you to disagree if you've already agreed twice or three times. So bringing in this power of agreement to build quick rapport has has served me well to to then get the fourth or fifth agreement on my terms. But anyways, that's I've, I've kind of answered it from my perspective. What's your perspective on de-escalation and rapport building in some of these very fractious and or and or um, immediate situations? Well, I, I use the same de-escalation techniques that what you just mentioned, which are always very important and very useful. I always uh, pay a lot of attention not to engage in discussions where I know is going to escalate. I never discuss politics with people I meet because it's not part of my job and it's always going to be very contentious. I don't discuss about religion because many people we, we meet in prisons would be uh, Islamist or jihadist or whatever. There's absolutely no way we can try to you know, engage in this kind of religious discussion and try to change their mind or whatever. It's not our role and it's not going to end well anyway. So by trying to you know, avoid these most sensitive topics and really focusing on humanitarian needs and you know, the specific work we do and sticking to this specific field, for me, is already preventing a lot of escalation. And so, and so to, to speak to that, um, do you, do you um, is, is your modality of communication more to sit and listen, to open up communication and to sit back and listen, or is it, or is it more to open up communication and to, to maybe um, pose your side of the, uh, of, the, of the agenda first? Or what's your modality of preference? Is it, is, it, is it to sit back and let other people talk, or is it, or is it to, 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 to really start to engage and, 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 and be the first one to communicate? It depends upon the country. In some countries, you have to assert yourself from the beginning to gain this rapport on an equal footing. So if you, if you have a more passive attitude, then your, your interlocutor is going to dominate you and it's not going to be conducive. Uh, in other countries, it's the opposite. You have to listen, you have to really let the person speak and take the floor first, and then we can build the rapport. So I think that's also very fascinating to see that in different cultures, the expected approach is extremely different. So that's what I'm trying to navigate through. It's really interesting to see the interplay of different cultures and different, di- different social expectations within, within, those, within those cultures. Um, something that I can certainly speak to around um, uh, the baseline of, of respect um, as, as and you're probably more well-versed in this than, than I am, but certainly London is a big melting pot of different cultures within, within one place. And, and, and just being culturally appropriated to, to know that um, when and where it's correct to interface with certain people uh, from a patriarchal sense or a matriarchal sense um, and, 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 and then and dealing with people that can, can then allow you to gain access to more information. Interestingly so, when there has been an emergency or a crisis with a younger person, what I've generally found is, although chaperoning is preferential, but de-escalating the scene, and it, I'd like to get your perspective on this. Actually, if, if you're meeting a leader and or community um, 
patriarch or matriarch, what I've generally found is more the more honest and prose and more honest conversation occurs when you de-escalate the scene, get people out of the room. Um, I so I know I've had to deal with some very person personal or fractious situations with younger people around sexual health or indeed around um, around some personal issues. Having five or six family members bearing down on this patient is ne- you're never going to get honest discourse with with people. Um, so having have de-escalating the scene and getting just either one on one or indeed just for, with, with the chaperone with one chaperone, but just uh, uh, allows you access into very much more de-escalated sense of you know other people aren't then bearing down on that situation. Is that something you've used in the past? To, to, to try and get more one-on-one rapport with certain individuals you want to build rapport with or indeed gain access to? Definitely. Uh, I think for, for me, the key is always to show respect to anybody we have in front of us, whether it's the group, whether it's the individual, respect the, the authority of the people or the, the leader, the elder or the village leader or whoever. So by showing respect is always the very first step that will allowed to deescalate any situation. Now, as you just mentioned, to be able to have a more uh, efficient response or dialogue or contact with someone, it's also important to be able to talk to the person directly. Uh, a situation I had, which is different from the, maybe the environment you work, but in many prisons, you have uh, obviously the, the detaining authorities, so the prison director, the prison guards and others, but within the prison, you have some hierarchy. You have some bus, buses. You know, you have some internal, even caste system. And in some countries, it's very obvious that you have caste among detainees. So respecting this caste system, because trying to fight it is not going to work ever. But on the other hand, for us to be able to really understand the specific condition of the most vulnerable prisoners, we need to talk to these people face-to-face, in private, without anybody else listening. Otherwise, we are not going to be able to know the true situation of the people. So navigating through this hierarchy and ensuring respect to the, the bosses within the prison, making them understand why we also need to talk to these most vulnerable detainees in private is, is always a challenge, and it's always very interesting to, to try to find this entry door. So pivoting slightly, uh, Jerome, and just looking at your own your, your own mental health again for 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 a short while, and just looking at how you de-escalate yourself, really. Um, so again, I'll just offer you you know some little things that I've gained in access into around meditation um, and. Uh, sitting and meditating for five to ten minutes a day prior to starting the day actually and something I found hugely beneficial and and that and that really is around sort of um, micro attention so acknowledging where my thoughts are now trying to clear my mind uh, breathing sort of using breath to come back to a very a very centered place of attention uh, um, is there any tools that you use um, to center yourself or indeed bring yourself into a place of mental clarity as before the day starts and i I suppose i'm speaking to now 
but also to some very difficult situations you've been through in you know going into these detention centers going into these security briefings or security measures or very difficult dynamics is there, is there anything you do to center yourself or optimize your own mental health definitely i think this breathing techniques is also something i am i use uh, i meditate maybe not every day but i try to also have this uh, discipline to meditate regularly my family is very important to me so having this bedrock of you know stability in my life is something which is of tremendous help to me and really at the you know keep me centered what, what i found most challenging is really the time which is just in between assignment in between missions uh, because when people are and i guess you might have the same experience but when you're in the middle of a, of a very hectic situation the emergency or the you know when you visit the prisons or when you you are when i had this meeting with the the rebel commander who wanted to chop my head off i i didn't feel overstressed at the time it's when you are out of this situation when you think about it and when you you know you you have to reflect on what happened that distress can come to me or that is the most uh, dangerous time in, in a sense for my mental health so having this coping mechanism in between times of emergencies or you know this emergency situation is really something that i'm trying to pay attention to because i know that if if i might struggle again with mental health issues it's not during the the hectic part of my work but it's in between this moment it's really interesting you say that jerome um something i learned to navigate in moments of stress was something called uh, box breathing and it was it was just really drawing to, and, and just to try and optimize my own physiology really so lower my heart rate lower my blood pressure um and that would just be just you know breathing in for four seconds holding for four seconds and breathing out forces and no one else needs to know i'm doing this but 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 but, but yourself and you're you in in that process improving mental clarity in some very stressful situations but quite rightly as you say jerome it's not necessarily just in the moment it's it's maybe upon reflection afterwards as well and i've certainly not been um um not been admonished from some uh, some some really you know stressful moments um retrospectively so looking back on something some some of the moments i've i've had ha have incrementally increased my stress a, a, as well so you you're right in the moment but but not forgetting that afterwards that's when things can really rush in the you know that you, you get a massive um rush of cortisol or stress hormone um after after some of these high acuity events when in the moment you you're just having to field and or deal with these but afterwards when you reflect on it and and the incremental stress can 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 play out it's really interesting so in your mind your main community would 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 be your family how important is it and could you speak to so people that may be starting icrc um or maybe indeed um, in the first few years of the career, how important is community um, and sort of have, having a good community around you to to mental health and, and or um, having a positive experience on a mission? It's a very hard um, task to be able to keep this balance because 
basically for me, for the last 22 years, I've moved country every second year. So keeping a network of friends is nearly impossible. Uh, the only stable uh, unity or unit I have in my life is my family, my wife and my three children. Because we obviously we move together and that's the stability I have in my life. So I really try to protect this, um, my family because that's the only uh, stable component I have with my life. I, don't, I have friends obviously, but not as many as I would like to. And it's always then long distance friendship and it's, it's not the same like when you have like friends from childhood you can keep for the rest of your life. So also with uh, this kind of lifestyle, also having a, a family life is not easy at all. You know, because the work is so overwhelming and we are just moving all the time and I'm away from my uh, main uh, place of assignment regularly as well. Family life is hard. It's really a struggle. It's hard on my family as well. My kids have to move school every second year. They have to make new friends every second year since the day of their birth. They have never lived in a place for more than two years since the day of their birth. And my eldest son is 18. Uh, for my wife as a training spouse, it's also not easy at all because for me I work, uh, I have my colleagues, I have my, I'm immediately you know, into, the, into the society where I work and I, for my wife to have this uh, burden of you know, always moving to an unknown environment in completely dif different cultures takes a lot of time to adapt and build her network of friends and you know, know the environment. So I think it's, it's very important to have this stability, but it's also come at a very high cost for, for all of us. Absolutely, indeed. And, 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 and like you said, it's almost con consistently um, renewing or indeed uh, refreshing um, the, the dynamics of, of friendships in new places, but also work dynamics and, and then trying to have a family life and, and, and a work life concurrently in, in changing environments, which like you say, can be quite destabilizing, really, and probably mandates quite a close family unit to, to survive such 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 changes and such high acuity stress in in these in these environments as well. And that's, that's that's actually really really interesting. So Jerome, I just wanted to tap into your mindset and approach, really, into in into sort of your past ten years. So what would sort of the Jerome of now? Tell the drum of ten years ago. Just any pearls of wisdom that you'd that you've you've learned over the past ten to fifteen years. Let's say ten years um, that you'd speak to your ten year ago self. Just just to sort of either encourage or placate or just reassure the the drum of ten years ago that you've that you've that you've learned on this journey of just multiple countries and multiple ecosystems. I would say um, I have to pick my battle, know exactly where I have to invest my time and energy on things that I know I can change, I can influence, and accept, even though it might be very difficult, that for other tasks or other topics, there's no possibility for me to change anything. And as painful as it might be, I have to accept that it's not worth you know, trying to change things that we know we cannot change. So really, 
you know, having this, cl this clear mind and, and uh, understanding helps me to, you know, feel better uh, personally and also I think helped me in my work to be far more efficient because then I can really invest my time, energy and dedication in, in aspect of my work where I know I can really influence things and, and bring the team with me and change things. Gosh, that's a really interesting principle there, Jerome, and it's very stoic that you say that because, you know, one of the ancient stoic principles is acknowledging what you can change and then also coming to peace with what you can't change um, and, and moving, moving, tra moving on, transcending some of those difficult emotions to, to, to focus your, your work on things you can influence and change. And just something me and you spoke around yesterday, actually, about the the panning back and seeing change over maybe years versus days or or indeed months and and looking even even over the process of a year versus um certainly i've been used to as a as a critical care paramedic seeing change for better or worse over uh, sequentially over moments you know over seconds and and minutes but actually looking at a humanitarian dynamic or living conditions or access to detainees or access to healthcare or indeed any of these multifactorial you know the 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 the, the, the security environments incrementally getting better or and or worse but panning back and looking at over months and or years and having a just a different lens lens to that versus a moment by moment because as you quite rightly said you could you could almost get or become quite disenfranchised and and uh, and disconnected and or feel a, 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 a little bit disheartened if you if, if you're judging the level of impact on the day or on the moment versus over over, over a period of time and I, th I think that there's something you said you know yesterday and or, and indeed today around affecting change where change is where, where, where there is possibility and acceptance as part of that. And then panning back and looking at change over a different, a different time frame than the one of this culture of immediacy, which we all live in, a culture of, of immediate, immediate results. And I think, Jerome, I think that's that I think that there's, there's, there's a lot more satisfaction probably in that and a lot more a lot more work satisfaction and probably uh, a lot more benefit to 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 longevity in in this ecosystem uh, from that mental from that shift in, in mindset in, in many countries we have this uh, medical program to support uh, local clinics or hospitals or uh, and that's something and also improving access to medical care for affected population and that's also a program which are very important and, and challenging to many, to many, to, to for many points. And there as well, I mean, ICRC can can have emergency assistance to this clinic. So sometimes we bring drugs, we bring equi equipment, we bring, we can train medical staff, and that can give immediate results or quite quick results. Everything which is about corruption or the the overall functioning of the medical system in one country which is going to take years to improve, which is going to take really commitment of many different stakeholders, authorities and other leaders, is something which is far more gradual and that we can influence, but it takes really a long, long time. So ha striking this right, right balance between you know, activities which can deliver 
credible immediate impact together with more long mid-term long-term endeavors is something which is yeah always very interesting a personal question around how hard you are on yourself as a, as, as a person so um one of the things um, we've spoken about before is around uh, the power of um, self-care and also around um, a pre uh, realigning expectations so expectations of your day-to-day -day and indeed of, of how much you've fostered self-care from a, a mental health perspective so I suppose my question really is around um, when did you when how do you approach um, if you've, if you've had a really difficult day indeed at work um, or, or otherwise, how do you reframe that to still sort of see the positive in, in, in the day? Um, because moving the needle must seem sometimes impossible in, in some of the initiatives within ICRC. But how, how do you st sort of still cleave enjoyment and or satisfaction out of the work when you, you're sometimes faced with what must seem an impossible mandate in certain areas? Well, I think I was really too harsh on myself before I, I had my depression, and that's one of the causes of the depression I had. So I learned how to cope with that and try to really express and, and share my feelings. I mean, really open up, especially with my wife, so I try to share as much as possible about my feeling with my wife and also listening to her side of the story because I mean she's also you know we are in, the, in this together so trying to to have this healthy uh, open conversation with the person who is the closest to me to my heart is something that is very important and and really taking time for myself trying to do some sport obviously trying to meditate trying to to have other activities and still in every country where I've worked uh, try to be interested in the culture, in the heritage, in the, in what the history of the country, what has built this country, and try to understand that the past and the, uh, that the current situation of the country where I work are very much sometimes the result of the past, again, not uh, minimizing anything when we, s when we speak about colonization or whatever, or, or countries which became independent still relatively recently, and I think the most important is not to judge the places where I work or not to try to compare too much. To say, ah, but you know, in, in, in Europe, the institutions, the, uh, the law or, or whatever is far more uh, stronger or we have less corruption than in many countries where I worked. And it's not, it's not necessarily because the, these other countries are certainly not as well managed as the more ad so-called advanced countries that there is no richness in the in, in their heritage and in trying to really yeah i mean learn more i think for me the the way i i can handle my emotion and my frustration is to discover more learn more about the country try to put that into perspective and by having this additional knowledge uh, from a local perspective helps me a lot to understand the situation i face Joe, listen, I really appreciate your time today and I know we've been speaking for over an hour now. Um, I just I just not only appreciate your personal vulnerability and story, but just some of the general principles we've been notioning towards because I, I find them 
hugely hugely interesting actually so and there's some real lessons to be learned across across the conversation so i just i just thank you for your time today because it's been really really informative thank you and it was really a pleasure talking to you Thank you.